We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. When you're faced with a difficult problem, most times you reach for a practical solution or a quick fix. But there is another approach to go beyond the mundane, to dig deeper, reach into unconscious wisdom, and even throw in a bit of magic. I've had a lot of clients who feel completely exhausted, the sort of exhaustion that a lie-in at the weekend or even a two-week vacation cannot touch. Perhaps they're caring for small children or financially providing for a family when the cost of everything is going skywards, or maybe working in the caring professions. These situations can all be bone-numbingly draining. So I wondered what it would be like to take this issue and instead of looking through the normal lens, how to ask for more help or self-care, we would take the second approach. So our topic today, how to care for others without exhausting yourself. My guest is storyteller and author Bia Gonzalez, who was born in Spain and immigrated to Canada as a child. She has an MA in Literary and Historical Studies from the University of London. She's the author of three novels, details in the show notes, and she's taught classes on Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. She also runs the website Sophia Cycles, which uses stories, myths and legends to unlock feminine wisdom. So how did you get into myths? Oh, that's a good question. I think uh, it was years ago, I was reading a Jungian analyst named Liz Green, and uh, I became really interested through, through her in the whole Jungian universe. And the thing I think that appealed to me about Jung as a person who studied literature, who was obviously writing fiction, is how much importance is placed on a metaphorical approach to things, which I don't think is the way we generally approach things. We're quite uh, hardcore realists. And when I discovered that, and then, of course, did started doing a lot of work with my dreams, which is a great way to contact the metaphorical world, my whole world expanded. And it really changed everything. First of all, even changed the way I looked at literature, which is interesting. Because I think even in literature, if you're studying it in an academic sense, it can actually be clogged down in biography and, you know, comparisons. But this world allows you into a language that has existed basically since the beginning of storytelling. And what I found is, and this is what led me to found this Fear Cycles project, is that it was healing in some way. And I can't one of the problems about speaking about this, and I'm sure you know this, it's it's hard to even articulate how or how it functions, but it somehow does, it's just like your dreams can really help you through that. So yeah, so it was pretty early on, I was doing my graduate work in England, actually, at the time in London, and uh, I, I found my attention being diverted completely to this other world. And I mean, I think as a fiction writer, you're always going to be attracted a bit to this because that's that's your universe. That's what you're working with. And then I did start, I did Jungian analysis here in Toronto for quite a while. And I was on track to become a Jungian analyst. 
but I just, when I thought about it, I, I thought really what I want to do is work with groups. That's my, my real, and it was actually my Jungian analyst at the time, Sophie Sinensky, who actually encouraged me to do that. She thought that was exactly what a lot of people weren't doing in that world. And um, I started creating this group and then it became a social online thing because that's where you can access more people. But yeah, it's been probably one of the most important things I've done for me and I hope for the group, the people who gather here on a regular basis to discuss things like, you know, a fairy tale. It may sound like a, a silly thing, but the fairy tale we're looking at today really helped us during the pandemic. We were online, we were trying to connect, it was very difficult to connect, and just dissecting that story and being with it and discussing it was, was really healing. Yes, the story is called The Skeleton Woman, and we'll be doing that one in a moment. But before we do that, let's try and, and help people understand the importance of symbols and metaphors and everything. Because I'm, I'm going to try and give an example of where an image, a metaphor helped me. And then I encourage you to see if you can find one as well. Okay. Okay. So I'm f at the moment looking into a particular idea that suggests that if a problem comes up during the day, you try and sort of dig into it and see what sort of messages you're getting and when the messages first started, like, you know, I have to be perfect, for example. That wasn't the particular one that I had, but that would be an example. And then we had to, when we thought of when we first got this message, we had to send the image back to the first time we were told this. And I was thinking, well, you know, a lot of the stuff that I have, which is a lot around, you know, achieving and all of those sort of kind of things, they happened such a long time ago. I mean, how on earth can I ever do that? But interestingly enough, on my morning meditation today, I had the image of being in a canoe on a sort of a, a river which has reached the tributaries. So it was very gentle. And as I was sitting sort of just in my meditation, thinking I was in a canoe, suddenly I had the image that I was in my baby carriage. And, you know, I know that my mother used to leave me because she did the same with my younger sister in the garage to get air. And I think, you know, her a break from us. So, you know, she would have a break. And if we cried, she didn't hear us for a while, sort <laughs> of kind of thing. And I had an image of myself in that baby carriage. And so I was able to send an image, a message to the image of me in the baby carriage. And that was actually far more powerful than just trying to send it back to some abstract time. Right, right. So that would be an example of where a symbol, and this one came out of meditation, was actually quite healing. Yeah. It's so funny. I can't think of one particular day. It will come to me. But your story reminds me very much of a story Pema Chodron, you know, the Buddhist teacher, tells. Exactly. And it's, it's very similar to what you told. And, and she tells a story about running a meditation retreat and finding herself really angry. And, you know, she said, obviously, when you do a lot of meditation, you're aware when something is rising in your body that doesn't feel right. And she thought, well, this is ridiculous. I'm a teacher. I should be sitting with it. So the first night after the meditation session, she she went and she sat. She determined, I must sit to figure out what it was. In this case, it was being triggered by a friend of hers. Again, it didn't make any sense. She felt impatience. Anyway, she sat with it. And as she sat, and it took a long time, she got exactly what you got, which is an image of herself sitting on a chair 
as a very young child and not being able to touch the floor and just feeling completely ungrounded and insecure and fearful. And that she recognized was what had been set off by an interaction she had had. Now, first of all, that takes tremendous honesty, by the way, to even go there. And I'm thinking from a Shodron who's a Buddhist teacher. And I think there's this weird idea that if you are a teacher of that caliber, that you should not still be complex, which... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which makes me laugh because, I mean, basically, you're going to be complex all of your life and we should just really just get real about that. But the fact that she was so honest and, and, tell, and really talking about, but she also, like you, located that attached. It was attached to an emotion that it happened as a child where she felt disempowered. And one of my, one of what I think I've also arrived at with the work I do with my group is that is a lot of what's happening. And if you catch it, and you're right that the symbol can be translated for that. And I think also you added something that I think in, in my own experience is very important, which is with sitting with it, you know, not trying to dissect it in an intellectual way. Oh, what could this symbol mean? What could this, but actually sitting with it. I think your body sometimes takes you exactly to the memory that you're trying to, to access. And and it's really powerful because once you do that, and this is the whole premise of the Sophia project, you stop blaming. You stop thinking it's your friend that did something to you. You start realizing that a lot of your reactions are just rooted in childhood experience where you had no language to understand it. And so I think symbols are incredibly, incredibly powerful. But again, without I don't know if you know the work of Yom McGilchrist. I think one of the things he's brought to the table, he's the author of The Master and His Emissary. And I really like what he says, that the left brain, which is not the image-making brain, it's more I would associate with that in his conceptualization to the right brain, tends to dissect and try to, through logic, understand something. And I think the symbol, the way I understand it, and maybe you can tell me the way you understand it, but the way I understand it through Jung's work, most especially, is something that is beyond language. It encompasses too many things. And I think what encompasses, what I've reached, my understanding is it encompasses your body. There's something about the body where the emotional center is. So it's not just words, because words have a habit of, I think, being reductionist and limiting, whereas that brings a whole experience, which is, by the way, what a story does. A story brings together a whole set of experiences that transcend language. It done well, of course. Yeah. So why are these ancient stories so powerful, do you think? Well, they've been told for 3,000 years in different in different forms. If you look at Jung's work, they hold archetypal truths that are common to every culture. I'm just right now listening to a series of talks on the Mahabharata, and you start understanding the Hindu epic, and you start understanding how many of our stories are cross-culturally have the same motifs. And this is, I think, where Jung's work really appealed to me, the idea that there is a larger story within the story. And that story is psychological. And I think in the old days, let's call the old days, you would have the gods, right? You would have many gods, and each of those gods had a uh, held on to a certain part of your psyche, and you understood your relationship to them through that. We don't really have that understanding today. I think we have a fundamentalism in our idea of what something should be. Whereas I think in a, a more distant time, there was an understanding that we were not one but many. And the way you understand that is through the stories that are out there. And so they're incredibly powerful. And it's funny, even today as a storyteller, like a modern storyteller, you're often dealing with the same motifs. You're putting it in in modern clothing, but each time you're going back and you're mining the same material. And, you know, there's many variations on it. There's no question about it. But I think fairy tales are particularly important. And I think this is where Marie-Louise Montfrance really comes in. She's one of my big heroes. She was one of the uh, 
people who was very close to Jung and did all the work on fairy tales. And I highly recommend if anybody's interested in this area that they look at her work specifically. And what she said, which is really interesting, is that myths are much more collective in the sense that they can actually also be tied to a culture, whereas fairy tales are really simple. You know, nobody gets named, right? There's no idea of locating it in time and space. It's always the once upon a time. And I think when you enter that realm, you're entering the realm of the unconscious very directly. That's the way I look at it anyway. I always say to my clients when we do these from time to time, I always say it's the collective wisdom of all of our ancestors. These stories have survived because they've got something important to say to us. And yes. if one storyteller adds a bit that, you know, if it, it to, to stick, it's got to have something really important. And so, you know, if we get some piece of information like it's a golden ball, that is a really important piece of information. So, you know, the, the few details we do have are really important. I think they also, just to add one more thing, because we use it so much in our group work, they also are a great way to allow you to understand dreams. If you understand the language of myth and fairy tale, your entry point into a dream, your own dream, is actually a lot more powerful because you understand how the language is working. There's similar languages. I mean, the dream does not communicate directly, right? It communicates in, in this more majestic language. So it's another good way to say, oh, okay, this keeps coming up. What is a king? Well, a king is the holder of consciousness in a big way. And when the king dies, that means something is changing and you want to pay attention to it. I always say with dream interpretation, the way I've been taught in the in the way that I've been trained is you want to look for the thing that stands out that that makes there's always a couple of details in there that you think why are they there they don't seem to follow in but they're actually often the key just like in a story to unlocking the meaning and that's what i found anyway so let's go and look at the skeleton woman and what we're going to do is i'm going to read a little bit of it and then we're going to look at that little bit and then slowly but surely we'll put the whole story together. And the idea is as we do this, we're not just going to be unlocking this particular story, but we're going to give you some sort of ideas of how to approach a story yourself if there's one. And to be honest, you can use it, do this with any story that is, that is really powerful. And if it speaks strongly to you, then that's a good story to work with. I think there's one other thing we need to say is that there is no right or wrong interpretation. Explain that to me, please. And that's so important. If you read enough of these analyses, and that's what we have, whether it's from France or even recently Richard Rohr, I was reading um, one of his, uh, I really love Parsifal, and there's so many different analyses of that particular tale. The thing is, there is not one particular thing. I think the, the only mistake you can make is if you start to try to locate it in time, that's not going to work. But the idea is that you want, want to work with the metaphors because, by the way, we're not all the same person. So we all will have a different slant on what an image may mean. And that's really what you're paying attention to. You're paying attention to how am I reacting to this? What does this image speak to me? Now, there are some archetypal themes, and we'll look at that too. But I think that is very true. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at this story, there's probably things I need to learn from it and they're going to be different from the things that you need to learn from it because we're different people at different stages in our lives. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So this is called The Skeleton Woman. Father and daughter stand on the top of the cliff. Beneath them, the water breaks on the rocks. The father's eyes are angry. He holds his daughter's neck, her eyes wide with fear, shouting at her. She screams. Maybe she was pushed, who knows? Maybe she slipped. So what strikes you as interesting? 
Well, it's interesting. One thing I should also make a point of, each of these stories is an Inuit tale that actually shows up. Uh, a lot of people might know it through the work of Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who wrote the book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. What's interesting about all these stories, and this will apply to all of them, is there are many ways of telling this story. So this is one version. The version we had looked at with my group, this is a more concise version than the one you're looking at, starts off with the same idea, which is a father basically throws the child into the sea, which is... My group is full of women. It's So we were horrified because in one of the versions of the tale, it says no one knew why he did this. It just happened, right? He just threw him into the, into the sea. And so if you're looking at a fairy tale, the opening scene, this is, sets the whole narrative, right? This is the problem. And so what does it mean to throw your daughter into the sea? We don't know why. We don't know if has she done something wrong, even if she has, why is she being thrown there? If you look at it uh, from a woman's perspective, a lot of the times you can take it to the personal and say, I understand when that's happened. But I like to go to the archetypal level. And I think if I look at that young girl as the state of our relational self, the state of what Jung called the feminine, then we've got a big problem that's showing up immediately, which is the masculine is represented by this father. And what I mean by the part that is in us, right? It's in everybody. So the other thing I think the way I approach it is each of these tales is about one psyche. It's about one thing. And we, we can't say it's men and we then it becomes political. And I think it loses the real power. So we have a problem at the beginning that the feminine, what's represented, the relational values, all that we value that is not action oriented, that is much more about being instead of doing has just been thrown into the water of the unconscious. It's just been said, yeah, you're not, you're not useful. We don't know why. Uh, it seems punitive, but again, there's no reason. So it's really a disturbing image and very powerful. Well, how did you, when you, when you read it, what did you think? Well, what I thought was really interesting is when you're faced or when I'm faced in my counselling room with sort of somebody who's obviously had trauma, the first instinct is to try and work out what the trauma was. And what this story says is, well, we don't actually know what was the cause of the trauma was. We don't know if it was an accident, it was done on purpose. We sort of don't know. We just know there was a trauma. And actually, and then the story is not at all interested in the father. But what it says is it happened. And actually, what we need to look at is the impact rather than what happened. And I think our society tends to focus on what happened rather than trying to sort out the impact. So that's what I, I got. It said to me as a therapist, yep, there's been trauma, but that's not the place to look. Let's look at what's happening right now. So what I would add in, in my group, if we were working with it, is Instead of looking at it as something done to me, if it is one psyche, then we're also talking about the way we do this to ourselves, right? The way that we throw ourselves into the into the into the ocean. It happens all the time when we when we don't want to face an issue that maybe come up it comes up. And so it doesn't the father is me, just like the daughter is me. So there's a part of myself that's sabotaging whatever I'm trying to do. And that yeah. part that's being sabotaged is the is the feminine. It's that relational capacity. It's the ability to see the other in you even and the and in the other person. So it's a it's a big problem. That's the way I usually approach it, but I can understand from a therapeutic viewpoint that yeah, you're you're putting the emphasis on the issue and not what happened or, or the perpetrator, because then you get locked and you can't get out of it. So let's continue with the story. What is known is that she fell from the cliffs, her body twisting and turning as she fell through the air, crashing and cracking against the rocks like limp, lifeless puppet, breaking her neck on the rocks below. And the scene came and drew her in, out into the bay and down to the bottom of the ocean where she lay. 
The fish came and feasted on her flesh until there was nothing left but her bones, swaying back and forth amid the seaweed. So this is the effect of this trauma. So this is what happens. This is what happens when we sabotage that part of ourselves. We end up, and I want to think of a skeleton, when I think of bones, I think of something that has no contact, no warmth. It's very, very cold. And there, there's no relationship to anything. And uh, yeah, it's left on the rocks. But also, I think very key to this, it's in the water. It's now gone into the unconscious where you're going to have to retrieve it in some way or another, or it will operate in a way that will sabotage you even more. So right now, we've, we've got that process that just ended with that, I think, quite powerful symbol of just the neck breaking and the, the, the body becoming bone. Well, I was really struck by the image, the fish came and feasted on her flesh. And this is what made me think about my exhausted clients, that something has been feasting on their flesh. They're just sort of skin and bones. They've been eaten alive by responsibilities, work, other people. I'm not quite certain what the fish are. I mean, if this was a client of mine, I'd say, you know, what are the fish in your life that are eating the flesh? Right. I, I would add that maybe sometimes it's your own thoughts that are the fish, right? Your mm. own spin on, and that's the way I looked at the fish. One of the things that creates, tra- at least for me in my, my life and what we talk about in my group, is how many times we consistently go over the same story in the same way. And it just eats us alive, <laughs> fundamentally, until we're nothing. And so if you're looking at it from the perspective of one psyche, then you're thinking, what is it that is doing this to me? So you could, you, you know, we have the old story, you can have pain, and then you have the, the suffering decided by your thoughts. So anything that's happening to you can be turned into that situation. If you, the word in, is coming to me in Spanish, not in English, we just keep chewing on it. And so the fish, which are great symbols of the unconscious, you know, it's the f- fishing around, yeah, they're coming over. And that is what's happening. I always ask myself in a situation where I'm stuck, Am I turning myself into a skeleton by regurgitating and keep on going over the same story over and over again? Yeah, and those thoughts will pick all the flesh off your bones. I I love that image. And from that day, fishermen avoided the place. They believed it to be haunted, cursed, and were forever mindful of the power of legend. So the way I look at this is the whole notion of some part of us knows that to fish into the unconscious is as a dangerous game. It's going to take out things that we may not be prepared to see, that we may need help in doing, and so you're going to avoid it. And I think actually that line may be speaking to our whole culture. That's what we do. We don't let's find an enemy out there, right? Because it's a lot easier to be angry at a group, a person an idea, political, whatever, than to look inside and say, okay, what in me is creating this, this scene? What, what, what in me? Because then you have to take responsibility. And I think that taking responsibility is a very hard thing because it requires humility, right? And lots of people say to me, it happened a very long time ago. Why do I have to go back there? <laughs> you know. So yes, you can leave the place haunted and go around it for the rest of your life or you could hope that something is going to change. And something is going to change. We've got some action about to start. What we might call in storytelling is the inciting event is now about to start the whole story off. And then it came to pass that a fisherman new to this part of the coast came to find work and build himself a home. He rowed out to that bay, hooked on his bait and cast out the line. He waited all day, but no fish took his bait. 
until, as the sun went down, the line suddenly tightened. His rod bent under the weight of his catch. What kind of fish was it? A shark? Surely something rich in meat. He imagined the faces of the locals when he showed them his catch, the money he would earn, the admiration from everyone, especially the women. For living alone, the fisherman did hope that one day he would catch himself a pretty girl and make her his wife. Right. So we've got the action, which is, of course, represented by the masculine who is going out fishing. You know, fishing is such a great motif, as you know, in all of our stories, our religious traditions, or, and you have to ask yourself why. And I think that is because since the beginning of time, we have been fishing in the unconscious for our stories, for our ideas, for our brilliant even scientific insights. They begin in the imagination. And so we have now have the masculine part of ourselves, the part that is active, going to find a solution. Unconsciously, I'm not saying it's being done in a conscious way. He's just gone ship fishing. But when you go fishing, I think you go looking into that part in the unconscious. And sometimes it happens, you know, quite spontaneously. Sometimes it happens with the help of a therapist. Sometimes it happens even in just everyday dialogue with someone. You recognize something is coming to the surface. And this is where you're, you start off with images. This is where I think images become really important. You know, what images coming, like for you, what, what came up that time was a connection to something in the past, right? In this case, he is trying to find a wife. He is trying to find his feminine side, his relational side. And you notice that he's behaving very much in a masculine way in the sense, and when I think masculine and feminine, people should not attribute this to male or female. You have to look at it more archetypally, which is that part of ourselves that wants action, that wants things to move. You notice he wants fame. He wants he wants recognition. He wants admiration for the fish he's about to catch. It's not a personal journey in his head yet. And yet what he's you know what he's really doing is fishing for some part of himself that is dormant and not integrated. And how many of us spend our time fishing for fame rather than what we really need? <laughs> yes. It's like it's it's the story of the age. Yes. <laughs> And yeah. when I say fame, I mean admiration and yes. the respect of other people and pleasing our mothers, um, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Never ends. Yes. It's just, it just amuses me that that's what he's doing, or at least that's what he thinks he's doing. He looked into the water and there in the twilight saw the dancing skeleton at the end of his line. Terrified, he turned away, grabbed his oars and began to row. He got back to the shore, looked over his shoulders and saw the skeleton still dancing on the end of his rod. He grabbed his rod and ran up the beach, turning around to see the skeleton twisting and crashing against the rocks, all the time following him. Right. <laughs> I mean, can you think of an image that is more terrifying than having a skeleton you just fished out of the water following you home? I mean, I, I can't think of one. It's really interesting because one of the words that comes in there immediately is dancing. And that's something that drew my attention. In some of the tellings of these stories, you, of this particular story, you get a lot of emphasis on movement and dance and drumming, which I think is very particular to the culture. But it's also the way that emotions are often contacted through the movement, not, not, you know, the static oh. approach. So he doesn't just have a skeleton. He has a dancing skeleton who's following him. And I think this is where, and you probably can speak more to this than I can, but where the skeleton is related to death in some way and to our fear of death and our fear of uh, contacting anything that isn't rooted in what's here now. And so the fact that he has picked up a skeleton that is now following him, but still dancing, so that seems very lively, right, is I think very significant. And what I was thinking is, however much we try and run away from our problems and our fate and everything else, it's... <laughs> 
chases after us. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sish is that, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think you can possibly guess what's going to be coming, but generally we should go towards our problems rather than run away from them. Yeah. Although I, I'll give, I'll cut him some slack and saying that if it's a skeleton, <laughs> I might be running away too. But yes, but I think also the bigger the problem, right? The more likely you're also going to, going to run away from it. And this is big. This is presented as a, a big, big thing that's about to happen. He reached the door of his cabin, threw it open and collapsed into a chair. He sat in the darkness, his heart beating like a drum, terrified. He sat there for a while, then got up and lit a tallow lamp in the wall. He saw the clutter of bones and staggered backwards until his back was against the wall, frozen with fright. He waited, but nothing happened. So this is the waiting time, isn't it? There's a period of time, I think, and this is where I think people, this is the dark night of the soul idea. This is where people really get into trouble, where you're between two ideas, two realities, two ways of seeing yourself, which are really, that's the scariest time because you have no idea what to do. Now it's a heap of bones in there, so it's not going to go away. It's there, but you're in that moment where nothing is clear. It's also sundown. You notice he went uh, fishing at sundown, so we're in the dark. It's, I think, at this moment where people feel the biggest need to get help because you don't know the outcome. You have to sit with whatever it is. And perhaps, and you're not going to get to it through thought. If you did, that's not a solution. So it really is, I think, the, the most precarious moment is that one. And I want to say it's okay to be frozen with fright. Yeah. Because if that's where we are, we have to stay there and investigate where does the freezing come from? Freezing is really interesting as a word. Obviously, this is a tale set in the North, Canadian North, so it has the whole motif in it. But it does remind me of a lot of work uh, that Bessel van der Kolk and Peter Levine and a lot of people have talked about in this trauma area, specialists in trauma, about how the way through this moment is to connect to the body. And I think that's important here because we don't have a body. The skeleton has no body. Right. And if it's a part of a psyche, what we tend to do is we tend to try to rationalize or put it away or avoid it. But actually sitting with the fear, actually, it's like a contraction. It does allow you to release. And Peter Levine's work in particular, I thought was really powerful for me in understanding how much trauma got trapped in the body. Because we're trying to avoid it. We're trying to avoid feeling it because it is so painful. But it is in the feeling of it again, the release, that you actually get transformation. So the idea is that the trauma gets trapped in the body because at the time you couldn't process it. Yeah. And now we've got the opportunity to process it and unfreeze it. And, you exactly. know, he, we've got a chance of unfreezing this moment. But uh, as you say, he has to wait. And maybe sit with it. Like I also see beyond waiting, he has to be able to bear that feeling. That is what we're not good at. Bear, just sit with the feeling and let it process. Then, intrigued, he gingerly walked over and touched the bones. They are cold and wet from the sea, but something deep inside him wanted to make things right. With great love and care, he started to move the bones slowly into place. He gently took a foot stuck inside a rib and with great skill untangled it. He went on this way until there before him was the skeleton of a woman. That's so interesting, isn't it? He wanted to make it right. Why? <laughs> we talked about this for a while. What in him? And I think there's an impulse in us at times to know we have to go towards what we fear, which is exactly what you said. If you don't go towards what you fear, it will destroy us. So he walks. But it's curiosity. And it's funny, curiosity is one of the 
one of the things we associate with the feminine, with the idea of, and it's encoded in all of our stories, of course, Pandora's box and whatever, opening it up, or with the idea of the cat, which is a very feminine kind of thing. It is his curiosity. But again, the line that is really interesting there is to make it right, to make it right. And going back to what I started the whole podcast talking about is trying to understand our tiredness and our immediate desire is to cure the tiredness, to try and find a solution for it rather than to stay with it and untangle it and see what the message is from the tiredness. What is it that is exactly is exhausting you? What is eating the flesh from your bones? And curiosity is possibly one of the best assets you can have on that journey. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely necessary. If you don't have that, you can't even start the journey. Uh, it's interesting that in this, at this point, he finds, he finds that it's a woman. And that's what he was looking for when he went fishing. At the end of the day, he was fishing for a wife. It reminds me of how many times we fish for something and, and it comes in a very different form from the way that we expect it to materialize. And then we have to take the reality and somehow marry it to what has shown up mm. and accept it, you know. So sometimes we get what we need rather than what we want. I would say that happens more often than not. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the way life is. Thank you, the Rolling Stones, for that <laughs> <Yes>. idea. <laughs> and when he was done, he slipped into bed, pulled his sealskin blanket over his body and fell asleep. He dreamed who knows of what. And as he did, so a tear ran down his face. Skeleton woman turned to watch the tear running onto his cheek. She started to move, stood and walked over to the bed, bent down and tasted his tear. Wow, that was a surprise, wasn't it? Yeah, the very thing he, he feared is the thing that's going to heal him, which, by the way, is the thing that uh, is often the case, right? But it's that relational moment, that feminine part of him comes over and behaves in a heart-filled way you know, uh, shows compassion when she wasn't, the skeleton wasn't shown compassion at the beginning, they, you know, eventually. But her first act as she becomes more embodied is to show compassion for him in trying to alleviate his, his torment. Mm. And then she started to sing. She sang for her flesh to return, for legs so that she could dance, arms to cook, hair so that she might be beautiful once more. Lips so that she could speak and kiss, a belly so that she might give birth. In this way, she sang and sang and sang herself back onto her bones. That's such a beautiful image, isn't it? It is. I'm rather overcome, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, so it's absolutely stunning. The idea that you can, and in some of the tellings of this tale, the drumming is happening at the same time and she's moving. And again, it speaks to that feminine quality of movement beyond words. Nothing here happens because of a word. <laughs> the beginning was not the word, it was movement. And singing is something that's so different because it takes us, it connects us to a completely different part of ourselves. But yeah, she's singing herself back into form. And, uh, you know, I think about this on a larger level, all of our cultures, pay so much attention to the arts in a way, because they are healing. They can be healing. From the Greeks, classical drama, that's how you were able to work out a lot of your uh, see on the stage and transform through the watching the suffering of others. And so when I think of the, the singing, I also think of what that does in a culture, that how that's often how we come together, whether it's in a church ceremony or, you know, in a concert hall, 
that is something that brings us together. It brings it is a great motif for the feminine, the connecting principle. And so I, I loved it when I read it. I thought, wow, this is this is uh, the the whole act of creation not being done through a wand, but through a song, which is just beautiful. And what people often say is one of the solutions for trauma is creativity. And here we have creativity expressing yourself, in this case through song, but it could be many other different ways, how that, um, let's say, puts the flesh back onto your bones. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of uh, in the Jungian universe, a lot of times with dreams, you're told to paint them, not talk about them, just create an image. And it's not because you want to be a great artist. It's just you are trying to use that, the image making capacity in yourself to transcend the, the words, right? Because sometimes you can get stuck again. And so, again, what you said, that uh, art in any form actually helps us process things in a different and deeper way. And when she was done, she lay down next to the fisherman, and in the morning when they awoke, he took her for his wife. Right. So thus the fairy tale ends. <laughs> so you can say, if you're looking at it from the perspective of one psyche, that that is the moment of integration. That's the moment he accepts that part of himself that is warm, that is relational. But it happens because he took the first step. He had the curiosity to try to make something right. And when you think about yourself about making things right, it is a recognition that there's something imbalanced, something that is not working for us. And if you are courageous enough to suffer the dark night and then, you know, take this step, it's, it can, yeah, it changes everything. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, people often say, well, every fairy tale ends with a marriage. Yes, because it ends with the integration of the two elements. And that can't happen until there's a change. And that change comes usually around the part of the story where someone takes a concerted action to change the dynamic that used to exist. And let's look at this from a a feminine wisdom point of view rather than a universal one, because I'm, I'm sure that this myth speaks really strongly to women. What sort of conclusions do they come away with? Well, I think when we did it in our group, it is the feeling that they as women, and we have to be careful because women, and this can apply to so many different people, but to so many, not only women, but the idea that you're not heard, <laughs> that you're not respected, that you're, you don't val- you're not valuable. That's why you end up in the bottom of the ocean, right? And you can then apply to all things, a lot of things that women are involved with. And sometimes it's things like the healing arts, which are associated sometimes, not exclusively, but they are all the things that we devalue about whatever the feminine journey is. I I thought it's touching that she develops a belly so she can give birth, which is something that sometimes, again, if you look at the way we've structured our society, isn't really valued as much, even though we pay lip service to it. You know, most women, like including myself, who've had children, know that things are not created for a world. Certainly, if you want to participate in the in the outer life, it makes it more difficult, etc. I tend not to look at it more from the feminine journey exclusively, only because I think that this story speaks to men as much. In fact, to me, it is so sad that men, when they're not connected to their feminine, they don't have that their emotional connection. And that's where I think it's very traumatic for men. So I look at it more as a, as a universal story from that perspective that, yes, we can say, well, women, this is a plight that happens in every culture. But I think it misses the, it really misses the power of the story, which is what, what's really sad is that we're not connecting to that emotional side, the, the side of us that gives us information from the heart and not from the head. And that is the bigger story that I think is in this encoded in this myth, in this story. And looking at it through the feeling of exhaustion that you've actually had the flesh stripped off your bones, what can it tell us about that? 
Ah, uh, okay. I mean, we all have moments when we're going through that. I think we're all collectively going through that now. All you have to do is watch news, and that will make you feel exhausted for for a good long while. Yeah, there is a feeling, but I think what it also has an answer, and I think that the reason that these stories are so powerful is that it presents a problem, but it gives you a solution. And I think the dancing into life might be the solution. So when you're feeling exhausted. We don't generally dance when we feel exhausted, but what is your version of dancing? Maybe you need to find a way to connect to a different part of yourself because exhaustion is often created again by the mind and by our interpretation of whatever's going on. Dancing cuts that. So in that story, I think what it's telling you is you're, you're exhausted by your own perception of things. Can you find a way out of it? And the body will, will allow you. And by the way, it's not as emphasized in this telling, but in, in many tellings of the story, the drumming is really important. And you know that in men's groups, when they get together, in a circle, it's the drumming because you're trying to bring out that that connection to the body and to b- bypass the mind, which usually traps us into our perception of things. So I think that's what's really powerful about this story, that the exhaustion is there. We're all exhausted, but we're not going to be able to rationalize. <laughs> we are not going to. Uh, we're going to have to find another way into our psyches. And, you know, fishing points to that because that's what we're doing when we're fishing. But also the dancing. I think it's it's really powerful, that motif. And I'm thinking that we need to get the balance to deal with exhaustion of the masculine elements and the feminine elements. Now, the masculine elements are generally good at boundaries, and yes. the feminine aspects are good at connecting and being aware of other people and the whole picture, and that somehow putting those two things together is going to help. I so totally agree. I think that's exactly it. There is a tendency to deny one or the other, and you need both. It's not an either-or world. What seems to dominate right now, if you want to talk about what, what this may be speaking to, is an imbalance of the being as opposed to the doing. So what's a way of being? Well, being, if you're doing all day, maybe sitting and meditating is actually a good being activity because you're trying to balance all that activity with a being moment. So I think it's pointing to a problem that we have in general, but as humans as well, because as he says, he's looking for fame and that's the doing part. That's the part. And by the way, very important, I think, for example, with a frog prince, that what the young girl is learning is boundary laying. You just gave a big important word for masculine. You need boundaries. If you don't, a lot of things go wrong. But I think maybe sometimes we also learn need to just let go of all boundaries in the sense of a, a space where you can do that. And that is, I think, where music or dancing or creativity can take us, you know, and why it can be healing. So we're going to look at a letter that's been written in in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So if you'd like to participate in the program, you can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, sign up for my newsletter and you'll find a section there where it says participate in the program. And you can write in a dilemma for me to discuss with one of my witnesses. And this is one that's been written in by a woman. I love my mother. She's a strong character with fixed ideas about how things should be done. 
In her praise, she often has good ideas and wants the best for me and my sister. But on the downside, I often find myself doing something to please her or for a quiet life. She can be relentless once she has an idea in her head. I'm in my mid-twenties and I have a job, a flat and a life of my own, but I keep on being dragged home for some special celebration or other. I suppose I need to be able to say no and mean it. The slightest wobble and she will have a million reasons why I should do something. She's already talking about hiring a big house in Tuscany for the summer. It's a free holiday and I could bring a friend, but it feels like I'm being trapped. So, what did you think? (laughs) Wow. You know, this is a big issue. I'm a mother, so I'm uncomfortable listening to this, thinking, oh, why am I doing this? And you're a daughter too. (laughs) And I'm a daughter too, yes. Yes, with a mother with many opinions. You know, I I think we're just talking about what we, we were talking about prior to this. One of the most difficult things... And when you become an adult, and I think this is where the fairy tales really deal with the transition from to, to adolescence, is to establish a good boundary with your parents. And that's difficult because we we have a habituated way of responding to our parents and it's hard to get and we there's expectations and there but I think it's probably one of the most important jobs you will have to do. And that doesn't mean you don't love them, it doesn't mean you don't want them in your life. But I think putting proper boundaries with your parents actually allows you to then set boundaries with others, which is really important. Important, especially for young women, because you know you're going to be facing points or people in your life that will push at you. And knowing how to say "I love you," but this isn't working for me is super important. But you know, I don't know about you, but it took me a long time to do that. It took me a long time uh, because it's very hard. You're so you're you feel like you're you're being a traitor. I mean, oh, you know, my mother does so much for me, and yet as a mother, I can tell you that a lot of where we stumble is our fears. Like we, our fears will project, make us believe inappropriately many times that we know what's best for that child, which is insane because at some point the child is taking direction and they will make mistakes and that is their job, you know, to learn. And so the job of the child, I think, and, and Marie-Louise von Franz has this great book on this whole problem called the Puritanus, is to be able to say, I am an independent person and I appreciate what you have to say. But I will make my own decisions. And, you know, she in this letter, this young lady actually does state the problem, which is I'm about to get a free holiday in Tuscany. But some part of me is already knowing it's probably not going to be free. Nothing is free. And so if I were her, I would say, is this a time to maybe lay a boundary and say, I have other plans or I'm, I'm going to do something different? Because one of the things that, that happens, and you see this more than I do as a therapist, I'm sure, is the inability to behave differently. You keep doing the same thing with a partner, with a child, with a parent, and nothing ever changes. And so to a certain degree, you need a pattern interrupt, right? Where you say, okay, this is not. So, But it's difficult. It is a, a difficult thing. How, how do you deal with this yourself in therapy? Well, I'm thinking of something my mother used to say, which was, the fish are rising well today. And, oh, and what she meant was just because somebody's put a nice worm out for you doesn't mean you have to go and take it. You can be minding your own fishy business along at the bottom of the sea or the bottom of the water, or bottom of the river. And just because something tempting, like, you know, your mother's casting a, a guilty worm out into the surface, doesn't mean that you have to rise up and take it. You can just ignore it. So actually, I think I'm with you a little bit on this one. It's a very tempting holiday, but it's got a hook in it. And do you want the hook? 
Well, and that's the question we have with all our relationships, right? How to manage? Because I think there's a weird way of being very extreme about these things. I mean, it's not about cutting someone out of your life completely. But at some point, if you start teaching them how you want to be treated, I think by demanding certain things, or by, you know, in this case, saying, no, that doesn't suit me. I think the thing changes. Now, I think it's always going to be complicated. Uh, you know, being a, having a parent, is not, it's one of the things that, you know, this is part of what our story is, you know, what, what, how we were raised, how people behave, what, what happens at dinners where people get together. But the boundaries are so important. They're so important. And I, I have to say, my experience is that women have more problems with setting boundaries. Maybe not in, in, in a family relationship, you probably see equally. But in general, this is something that we're not taught, I don't think, to do. And then we get into trouble, you know, because we're, it's not feminine to say no to somebody or you have to be nice. No, sometimes you have to be very direct and firm and say this doesn't work. And I think fairy tales can help us because in fairy tales, we have the light and the dark characters. The one I'm thinking of is Snow White, where you have the wicked stepmother, who I believe in the original version was just her own mother. And we have lots of dark female characters. And so it's about saying we have both sides to us. We have the light side and we have the shadow side. And this story is all about the light side and sort of hinting at the dark side and actually saying that almost not being afraid, in fact, being afraid to own your own dark side, which says, back off, mum, that actually says mother's love is wonderful, but it can actually also be quite dark and controlling. And I think fairy tales are very good at actually showing us both the light and the dark side. Well, and, and fairy tales and myth, I mean, Eric Neumann's work on this is really quite amazing because you do have the, and archetypally, the devouring mother. It's part of it. And it's, it actually represents the unconscious. It's a part of you that wants to regress into safety that doesn't want to take on the adventure, right? Because the adventure, there's dragons and you're going to have to face them. And so I think we all have a, you know, we all turn to mother when we're feeling a little bit assailed because, and you notice that in the story we talked about, there was no mother. We have no idea where the mother is, right? Mm. And so the mother is safety, but it's also, it does not allow us to take the step into growth. So we have to balance that. Sometimes we do have to have a foot in the safety, but we also have to know how to navigate the outside world. And I wonder sometimes when we do set those parameters with our mother, if we're also archetypally saying, I am ready to set a foot out into the outer world and take on a challenge that maybe I didn't want to or didn't feel empowered to take on before. So on an archetypal level, it's it's a larger story. It's a story of saying, I assert my individuality in light of these forces that will keep me very safe, but won't allow my growth. Yeah. So our correspondent has a job, a flat, and a life of her own, but her mother keeps on dragging her backwards. And we do want to go back to safety, but ultimately, a safe life is no life at all. No. Now the bargain is a bad one, and that doesn't mean there are moments when you when you know I my I'm internally grateful to my mother when I had my children very helpful, but again it's the idea that if the mother is there controlling aspects of the life, you you can't take that step fully. You haven't taken it fully, and that is really I think what the first half of life is about: separating from the parents and saying my life is my own. But it's difficult. Look, I, I have nothing but, uh, like I said, it's taken me a long time. And I'm not sure you're ever really free of it. You think you are, and then boom, something happens and you're right back in the story. So, 
uh, sadly, my mother is dead. And guess what we're working on in my therapy at the moment? Yeah. My relationship with my mother. So, of course, it's it doesn't it doesn't matter they're there or not. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a long task, but it's worth yep. it. Oh, it is. So we've almost finished, but I have to ask you, as a witness on the meaningful life, what makes your life meaningful? These conversations. This is why I founded Sophia Cycles. Uh, my my whole idea was I did not like the conversations that were happening out in the world and in my own dinner party life. I'm happy to talk about politics. I'm happy to talk about whatever your child is doing. But what I felt in ab- the absence, I was raised a Catholic, but do not belong to the church. I, I, I sensed that what I needed was a deeper conversation. And so I recruited people to have a different conversation. And so when we meet in, in the meetings that we have, we're about four or five hours. We're not talking about what everybody else is talking about. We're talking about our inner life. And it feels like communion with something that makes me feel whole. And so, you know, writing is that for me too. Like that's my own personal journey of, you know, I get stories and I put them down, but it's the connection with these people. And what I realized 12 years ago is that there's a community of people out in the world that we can now connect to. That's the gift of social media. There's a lot of curses that have come with social media because a lot of insanity happens there, but there's a very positive side. And that is that people like you can have a podcast that now can reach anybody in the world and it's helpful. And because you're changing the nature of the conversation and you're not being unrealistic about solving problems that are really complex. And we have to be really clear about that. And so to me, that's what gives me meaning. That's why I started the project. That's why it keeps growing in its own way. And because what I found is other people want those conversations too. They want to have a different conversation. So that's what gives me meaning. Well, I'm enjoying this conversation and it doesn't end here because if you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, we're going to be talking about code breaking and unlocking the symbolic life. We've started, but uh, we've got some more tools to give you. If you'd like to hear this bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.